Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, the Kiwi community pushing back against solar farms. So what do you think it's done to the value of your... I, well, I can't sell it. The, the, there will be no value to the land. And 41 years since he first entered Parliament, Phil Goff is still grappling with one of the big tensions in politics. While nobody likes taxes or rates, if we don't have taxes or rates, we have a far less fair society and a society that doesn't deliver what we collectively utilise. We'll have that interview for you shortly, but we begin this morning with the legislation dividing opinion within government that could change the way we all watch sport. Green MP Chloe Swarbrick's alcohol harm minimisation bill would give local communities greater control over where liquor outlets can go and remove all sponsorship and advertising from broadcast sport. On Wednesday, a petition was delivered to Parliament supporting the bill to Party Māori and the Greens will support it at the first reading. For now, National and ACT MPs will vote against it, while Labour MPs will treat it as a conscience vote. Several of the bill's proposals come directly from the recommendations of a ministerial forum on alcohol advertising and sponsorship. That forum was chaired by former NRL chairman and rugby league coach Sir Graham Lowe. But since the forum released its findings in 2014, eight years ago, crickets. Sir Graham Lowe is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Jack. Take us back. How did your experience cheering that forum shape the way you see alcohol in our society? Um, well, what it did, the whole experience reminded me of how tough a subject it is. It's not, a, if, you, if you want to go down the line of this topic, it's not a popularity contest. You've got to make a decision. And um, what the experience that I come away with was I was so proud of the forum. I was, so, I was so proud of what we did and my forum team members. It was just fantastic. Put a lot of work and effort in. And we were really proud of what we did. Mm. But the response, the, 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 the noise from the government coming back was deafening. I mean, it was just ignored. I was so annoyed. I thought, what a waste of time. It was an insult to me. Mm. was an insult to the, to the forum. And, and what, I, what I came away with to answer the question was it's a tough subject that has to be faced by people with got some guts. Mm. I, I want to talk about the political response a bit more in a moment. But, but from, from an evidential perspective, what did it teach you and the other people on the forum about how al alcohol sits within our lives? It was quite harrowing in some ways to go through because you, you don't have to walk too far in the city of Auckland um, in the evening to see the effect that alcohol can, the harm alcohol can have on young children around the place. I'm, I'm talking 11, 12, 13 year old kids mm. and, and that's what worried me and, and, and that's, that was the target that we set um, uh, when we went about the whole thing, Jack. The forum published some pretty frank recommendations including a ban on advertising and sponsorship in professional sport. Why did you reach that conclusion? Because, I mean, that's what young people watch. And I'm well aware how important sponsorship is to sporting organisations. I'm really well aware of that. But that's what little kids watch. And, and at the time when we did this, I had, I've got twin, twin boys, and at the time mm. they are only around five or six or something like that. And I remember talking to them and their mates, can you tell me what the sponsors are of all these teams? And they could reel them off one after another. And that's the effect. You know, kids, that's why the, that's why the um, advertising companies put the... You know the logos on the jerseys because yeah. they're picked up by everyone, and if we don't think that kids are going to start having a brain, um, a brand 
uh, loyalty mm. right at that early age we're kidding ourselves yeah that's interesting isn't it how, how did that affect you See, seeing your sons reel off those oh, I was proud of them, them to tell the truth <laughs> I, I was proud of them because I couldn't remember them, so <laughs> I, was, I, was, I thought it was fantastic but that's that's the imagine that's what kids have got now yeah um, and and I'm not saying that 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 advertising companies do that directly to to cause any harm but that's the effect of it in the end mm. and we saw the effect we listened to the effect from the from the health side we listened to, to both sides of what was quite strange was listening to the same evidence spun both ways one pro and one anti mm. um, but it was quite harrowing to to, to see the, the exact effect that it can have the harm that it can have on young children you are in a unique position to assess this subject and I want to show our audience a bit of a photo. Not only are you a former top coach, not only are you a former NRL chairman, you are also a former sales manager for Lion. So having published your recommendations as part of that forum, given your background, did you get pushback? Did, did some of your friends or family say, Loi, what are you up to? No, quite the opposite. I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough subject. You don't do it to win a popularity contest. And, and I was really pleased. I can't recall one single incident. And I, I, know, I, know, I still know plenty of people in the alcohol uh, industry who are great people, but I never, had, um, I never had any issue whatsoever. It wouldn't have worried me if I did, mm. but I never had any issue whatsoever because I think everyone realises this has to be faced at some mm. stage. It's no different to cigarettes and the challenge that was faced when they decided to, to shift the cigarettes out of sport. Mm. Like I said, you, you have experience as the chairman of an NRL club. How important is CEO. alcohol? CEO, sorry. How, how important is alcohol advertising and sponsorship to professional sports teams? It's it's absolutely important. It's really a, it, because it comes in. Su it's such a big amount. It's mm. such a huge amount of money. It's probably in many cases bigger than any of the other, other sponsors they've got. And it's a low hanging fruit. The alcohol companies are very willing to. To, to talk to you and get you to get their product, you know, out on the screen as quickly as they can. So, it's it's a it's a you know match made in heaven in some ways as far as the club and the and the uh, the alcohol people are concerned. Um, so, the the sporting clubs just love it. It's low hanging fruit. It's easy to get. So, what would happen if we banned it? Well, the thing with, with this, in my view, has always been with the professional organisations. Mm. They've got a cast of thousands in their marketing teams. Or, you know, they've got good, strong marketing teams. So mm. if a sponsorship was removed, their marketing teams can go out and hook sponsors from other areas. They'll find it. There'll be a mm. bit of whinging and kicking around, kicking things around, but they'll, they'll, they'll get over it and they'll find sponsorship in the end. That's interesting. So, so you don't think it would pose an existential threat or anything like that, at least for professional teams? For professional sport, yeah. definitely not. Amateur sport, it's a different story. You see, that, and that's a really important mm. distinction, isn't it? Because like this bill, mm. you recommended a ban on advertising and sponsorship for professional mm. sport. This bill focuses on sports that are broadcast, and I know that there is some debate over exactly what, yeah. you know, what, what is and isn't a broadcast sport. But this, this bill, uh, this member's bill, focuses on broadcast sport, and it's an important distinction. Let's talk about the political response then. What happened after you published your recommendations? Mate, the noise from government was deafening. I never heard a thing. One of them rang me up because uh, I'd said something in the paper having a bit of a whinge. I was absolutely insulted by the lack of response from the government. Even if they didn't agree with what we wanted, I thought someone would have had at least the decency or the courage to ring up and say, listen, this is the feedback we've had so far and whatnot. But we heard nothing.
Mm. And I felt so bad for the, for the team, our, our forum, that, that worked very hard. People mightn't have thought it, but we worked very hard and we knew what a tough topic it was. And, and we, we really you know, came up with what we thought was the right thing at the time. Did you feel you put your neck out? Oh, we had the neck out for absolute, for sure. Um, and that's, that's why I was, I was so proud of the team because I remember saying to mm. them right on day one, listen, your head's on the block here because you're going to have half the people will think you're fantastic for, doing, mm. for whatever you decide one way or the other and the other half are going to hate your guts. So um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy topic to address, but they did it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when, when I called you this week, I was really struck by how disillusioned you seemed by the whole experience and, and not necessarily just in the government of the day when you published your recommendations, but I mean... We've had a government in for five years now. They have recommendations from uh, the inquiry into mental health and they say they're working on some changes in legislation. But it seems that successive governments have a problem when it comes to tackling this issue. Well, they, they, they don't seem particularly enthusiastic about it. Well, I am disillusioned, Jack, because it's the, the, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the little... It's the, the, the egg of something much bigger because it's... This problem, this problem with alcohol abuse with young children and the harm to young children is going far worse. I mean, we hear about ram raids and all that sort of thing at the time. This is all interconnected. Anybody who thinks it doesn't, is not interconnected is living on another planet. And I, so I got disillusioned because this was a strong, powerful topic. Mm. And, I, and, and to do it, I, I, sort of, I, I went into it 100% and tried to, tried to do it justice. Mm. And I thought it deserved at least a response in some way from mm. someone from government. But we didn't get any response. So I am disillusioned with the whole thing because too many of the politicians think they're in there to win a popularity contest. They're not. They're there to, to put forward and act on tough decisions. And I don't think they got the guts to do it. Yeah, to, to tell me a bit more about that. Why don't you think politicians tackle this subject more assertively? Because they want to be popular. It's as simple as that. They want to be popular. They, they, they don't want to. I mean, to, if you want to be a, mm. if, if you want to be popular, you sell ice creams. You certainly don't put yourself in parliament. And I think we've got too many people in there that should be selling ice creams because these tough call, these tough calls need tough people to do them. And it's not personal. No one's taking anything personal. Mm. They, they're just calls that need to be made. It's, it's like it's no different to picking a footy team. If you've got 18 players and you can only play 15 or 13, mm. you have to go up and say to those other players, you're not in the team. That's, that's really, it's not easy to do. People think it is. Mm. It's not easy to do. Most of the politicians couldn't even do a thing like that. You said that all of these issues are interconnected, and I think we'd all agree on that, that the social issues uh, are all woven together. There's complexity in that. I, I wondered, would you, would you support a ban on gambling advertising in broadcast sport? I think it's got to be addressed. I think it has to be addressed, it's, you know, because it is. It's you, there's so much, there's so much evidence everywhere. You don't have to listen to the academics to get the evidence. You just got to open your eyes and your ears and go for a walk around where you live, and you'll see the result of people who are gambling and addicted to gambling, who can't afford to do that. Not thinking of standing for the Greens anytime soon, are you, Lowy? <laughs> No, I'm not, no. <laughs> um, this bill is going to be going for its first reading sometime in the next few weeks. What would be your message to politicians as they consider which way they'll vote? Oh, I think that they've, they, ca they can't just dismiss it. This is something that's been going on for ages. I think that it's a tough call. They'll be you always, history is always the judge. History is the judge. So I think if I was a politician, I'd want history to judge me as I made a call 
and the first thing, I, the main thing I had in front of my mind when I was making this decision was the harm to young children that can be caused by alcohol advertising in sport. Thank you very much for your time. And before we let you go, happy birthday. 76 today. Oh, come on. You don't look a day over 45. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Sir Graham Lowe. Coming up on Q&A, he was the Minister of Justice, Minister of Defence, Foreign Affairs and Trade, Leader of the Opposition and Mayor of our biggest city. Phil Goff tells us what he thinks it'll take to get a capital gains tax over the line. Hōki mai we welcome back to Q&A. Phil Goff has been in politics for more than 40 years. He was a senior cabinet minister and leader of the opposition. And now, after two terms, he's stepping down as the mayor of Tāmaki Makoto, Auckland. He and I sat down in his office for a wide-ranging conversation. I'll trade you a boast for a regret. So give me the thing that you are proudest of as mayor and something that you think you could have done better. Well, you can always do better on just about anything you do in life and uh, you learn from every experience. That's, that's, that's a, a good pathway for any politician to follow. Um, what I think have been the achievements, um, it's been steady, uh, sensible, fiscally responsible governance, being able to work and bring a team together. And to bring that team together to do a number of things, we've massively increased the investment in infrastructure, water uh, and transport in the city. Environmentally, working towards a sustainable environment, the, the climate action plan, the climate uh, action targeted rate, um, planting 2.7 million trees, predator control to bring the bird life back. Yeah, it goes on. This I know is, you said only one. But yeah, and, and boast is the wrong word because I'm not claiming personal responsibility for that. I'm saying that I've worked with a team of people who have helped achieve that outcome and we are all proud of that outcome. Okay, what could you have done better? I think at the beginning I had to make that transition from Parliament being a Cabinet Minister where you make a decision in Cabinet and your caucus and your majority in Parliament make sure that it goes through. In Council you've got 20 um, really interesting but opinionated councillors and you've got to work together to make sure that that team shares your vision. You can't take their support for granted. You've got to work on every vote to make sure you've got that majority. And it took me a few months to learn that, but I got there. It's not really a regret, is it? Come on. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's something that, that I've learned. Right. I mean, if I have a regret um, on a different front, it's that COVID came along uh, and destroyed two years of being able to interact in the normal way with your community and, and stole a billion dollars out of my budget. Yeah. That made life in the last two years really difficult. What do you think is the biggest risk Auckland faces? Well, we've got to become a, a high-quality, compact city. The old days, I remember talking to Eric Garcetti, and he said, Phil, the problem, he's the Mayor of Los Angeles, yeah. the problem that you, you, you have in Auckland is that you followed our example, a sprawling city connected by ever-growing motorways, and that's no path to the future. So, you know, the old... Auckland that I grew up in, you know, where we had a quarter acre section. Actually, we had a three quarter acre section in Mount Roskill when I was a child. That's gone. So how do you make your city more intensive to deal with problems like congestion, like climate change emissions, um, but still preserve a really good quality of life? 
And, you know, I'm on record as opposing some of the things that Parliament, Labour and National uh, together imposed on us with intensification without regard to whether you had the infrastructure to match it. Um, but I am in favour of infrastructure uh, uh, to make sure that we've got an intensive and workable and livable city. Mm. Auckland's a sprawling city. It's also a diverse city. Mm. There is a really significant Asian yeah. population in Auckland. And I wonder if you look at the council as it stands today, is that body representative of the city? No, it's not. We've got um, one uh, Chinese uh, councillor, Paul Young, who's a very good councillor. It's Taiwanese, uh, I think, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but Chinese. Uh, and 25% of our community is, is now Asian. So I'd like to see more balance on that side. On the other side, um, we, we have got three Pacifica uh, uh, councillors, and they're all good councillors too. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons, I guess, I, you know, um, I'm 69 now, that's not a, a great secret. I thought, look, it's, it's time that we, we want to encourage younger people to come in and pick up the baton uh, for, for running our city. And then, of course, one of my potential successes is uh, going to be close to 80 by the time he'd finish his term if he were to win. But I, I think you do. You, you, I believe in merit. Always vote for your, your councillor or your mayor on merit. But it's great to have a representative city that's gender representative, ethnicity representative, and, and something approaching uh, a cross-section of ages. We've got young councillors like Shane Henderson, Richard Hills, and they come in with a, a different world view. Yeah. But that's really valuable to what we do on council. It's 41 years since you first entered politics. How have political dynamics in New Zealand changed in that time? Yeah, well, yeah, this, this dates me a little. I, I became an MP when Sir Robert Muldoon was Prime Minister, and the nature of Parliament was quite different in those days, and, and in some ways much less professional. Um, you know, for example, you'd, I'd come home on a Friday afternoon, Parliament used to sit on a Friday, and I'd go down to my church hall and there'd be a long queue of people waiting to see me as the local MP. We didn't have electorate secretaries. Mm. You know, my wife did a lot of that work and then volunteers helped me with that work. So um, MPs are, are, are better equipped now. The, the nature of the world has changed. I, again, when I first went into Parliament, you could stroll past reception and say, oh, I'm after so-and-so who's, uh, you know, MP for such-and-such, and, such, and I'd say, oh, you know, second corridor on the left. <laughs> and now you go through metal detectors yeah. and uh, security guards and, and, and the whole uh, nine yards. Um, and... The, and the world has changed too. Environment used to be a, a, an issue on the margins. Now it's mainstream and centre, and, and, and rightly so. Um, have people become less adversarial? Possibly not. Uh, and one of the things I've got to say that I enjoyed when I got out of Parliament was not just being in that adversarial atmosphere. Mm. Uh, maybe as part of democracy, you need to challenge and, uh, uh, and question what the government is doing. And Sometimes the, 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 the parliamentary chamber, that's where, you know, that's the theatrical stage and people get on mm. a whole lot better than it appears to in the chamber. Mm. I hope that we can maintain a system where we don't, you, know, you don't get the, the bitterness, the hatredness, uh, the hatred, um, you know, the divisiveness uh, that you see even in a country like the United States today, mm. that people can say, look, we're all New Zealanders, we've got different views. Uh, I disagree with you, but I respect your right to hold that view. But let's work together and find how we can put in place evidence-driven policies. That will make a great future for New Zealand. Uh, antagonism and factionalism for the sake of it doesn't offer that future. Are politicians too poll-driven? 
Yeah, well, probably. Um, you know, and the nature of democracy is that um, if you can't persuade a majority of people to support you, you don't have the opportunity to exercise power. So you need to know where there is support for what you're doing, but you shouldn't be so poll-driven that you neglect your obligation of leadership, which is find what you what policies you believe are absolutely essential and do it after your, your research. Make sure that what you're advocating is evidence-driven and then have the courage of your convictions to put it in do place. Do you reckon that happens? Um, to some degree, yes. Um, and can, can you think of, maybe with Three Waters being a, being a prime example, can you think of any other examples where government has, has pursued a, a deeply unpopular policy because they thought it was the right thing to do? Well, can I bring it down to the council level and say... Rates are deeply unpopular, mm. um, but I've brought in targeted rates to deal with protecting our natural environment, uh, uh, protecting our water quality, to mm. stop a century of wastewater flowing into our harbours and onto our beaches, and at a time when we're really pressed financially to bring in a climate action targeted rate. All of those were a high risk. But what we did, we first of all put our case out there. We asked for submissions. We took on board the submissions. We polled to find out what pub the public believed. And there'd be a lot of my councillors that say, I won't touch anything that increases rates. Mm. And then they find out, actually, the public is in favour of you cleaning up the beaches and the harbour and stopping the wastewater. They're in favour of you protecting iconic kauri trees by, by having those safeguards in place. They're in favour of you actually grabbing the issue of climate change and saying, we're going to make a better future for our kids and our grandkids. So it's a mixture of those things. Mm. But, but you've got to provide the leadership first and be prepared to take the risk. And then you've got to put your head around mm. making sure, you know, it's great to lead, but look over your shoulder and make, people, make sure people are following, because if they're not, then your policy is doomed. See, I, I remember when you were in Parliament, though, you were a massive advocate for the capital gains tax. Yep. And I wonder where that leadership that you have just described has been for something like capital gains. <laughs> I still believe in a capital gains tax. I think it's crazy that um, I pay 39 cents in the dollar on my income tax, and uh, uh, if, I, if I sell a property I own, I pay no tax on it at all. Mm. Uh, I stand by that. Some people said that might have been a bit suicidal, that might not have enhanced your chances. Um, I hope the time will come when New Zealand does what almost every other country in the world does, and that says tax your capital gain in the mm. same way you tax the income So what tax. kind of leader will that take? Um, uh, a, a leader that has the ability to persuade people that while nobody likes taxes or rates, mm. if we don't have taxes or rates, we have a far less fair society and a society that doesn't deliver what we collectively utilise. Mm. So, you know, it's what drives me mad is you get something like the Taxpayers Alliance or the Ratepayers Alliance. They know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And if we were to follow their advice, and I've ignored their advice time and again, they threaten me every election, and I've, I've won each of the elections I've fought as mayor. If we were to follow their advice, we would have an incredibly poor society and an inequitable one. Another throwback to your time in government. I think you were the Minister of Trade when the free trade deal was yep. first signed with China. 
I just wondered if you had any reflections on how that relationship has evolved over the years and about New Zealand's reliance on China as a trading partner at the moment. Yeah, a few reflections on that. Um, I remember negotiating the deal with the uh, then uh, Minister of Commerce in China, Bao Xilai, who's now in jail, by the way, um, and he leaned across the table through his interpreter and said, we are really worried about your powerful dairy industry. And I laughed, and he looked bemused by that, and I said, Minister, we're a country of uh, four and a half million people. You're a country of 1.3 billion, and you're worried about our threat to you. Mm. Um, how the trade agreement has worked has been brilliant. You know, our two-way trade was probably four or five billion when I signed that deal. Now it's 37 billion. Uh, and through that global economic crisis, uh, and, and now we would be a much poorer country if we didn't have a market for our goods that paid the top dollar. Equally, it's important not to become over-reliant on any one market. Are we? Um, I think we are on the edge of being over-reliant with 32% of our, our goods exports going to China. And uh, without disrespect to China, uh, we need to do the work. We need to take advantage of, say, the free trade agreement that uh, is, is going through the, the House of Commons at the moment in the UK. Mm. Um, the, I'll call it a partial free trade agreement with Europe. We need to develop those other markets because it's never good for us to be totally reliant on one country as we were once totally reliant on the United Kingdom. Have you seen the pound this week? I'm not sure we should be terribly reliant. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, it's a, it's some curious changes yeah. when you say we've got, we're facing 18% inflation, we're going to borrow to pay for tax cuts that will both increase inflation, cause the, uh, the, the uh, Bank of England yeah. to, uh, to, to, to hype the, uh, the interest rates. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that bemuses me. Finally then, what is your advice to your replacement in this role? Um, you've got to be ready to listen. Never think that you're the smartest person in the room and you can't learn from others. You've got to understand that uh, when you're working on council, there are no caucuses, there are no um, you know, uh, party control over a majority. You've got to work with other people and persuade them that your vision of what the city should look like uh, is a vision that they can share and they can support. That is the answer of someone who thinks Wayne Brown's going to be the next mayor. Um, I don't know who the next mayor yeah, will no, be. Yeah, but that, that answer uh, said to me, you, uh, you think Wayne Brown's going to win. That, that advice I would give to anyone who hoped to be mayor. That is outgoing Auckland Mayor Phil Goff. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please, koordinate my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break on Q&A, putting the heat on solar. Renewable energy might be critical for a low-carbon future. But how would you feel if this was in your backyard? Kia ora, welcome back. The sun is rising on a new industry in Aotearoa. Solar farming. Foreign-backed developers are in a rush to secure farmland in what's being described by some as a land grab. And while it might be good news for our renewable energy targets, in some communities, solar farms are being met with fierce opposition. Here's Fina Owen. Greytown in the Wairarapa is famous for its heritage. It was the home of the Māori Parliament. It's known for its trees, historic buildings, two Christmases a year and rural character. It's why Elizabeth moved here four years ago. Then recently, the local farmer came to tell her there were plans for a solar farm on his land. Rows of four and a half metre high solar panels on three sides of her section. 
basically the moment Barry knocked on my door, I'm penniless. <laughs> Sorry. Solar parks are rolling out across the world. New Zealand has set a goal of 100% renewable energy generation by 2030. And Liz is 100% supportive of that. Across her fence, American-backed company Helios has a 35-year lease on 190 hectares. The farm is close to Greytown and close to 27 homes. Homeowners who feel like the collateral damage in the race to zero carbon. What will happen to all these trees? Oh, they all have to be pulled out, they'll be gone. And I wanted this to um, build a business to, um, to support me. Um, I've developed a B&B, &B, um, which is working, and that is not going to be viable. Nobody comes to an industrial power plant for a holiday. Um, so, so what do you think it's done to the value of your... I, well, I can't sell it. The, the, there will be no value to the land. Down the road, Lloyd is also dealing with the stress of uncertainty and potential financial loss. If I put it on the market, no one will buy it. Well, they're asking me to take a hit, put up with the visual pollution, lose the rural character of the area, so that they can make a lot of money. Less than a kilometre away along this road, another solar farm is further along in the consenting process. Far North Solar Farms plan to build a 141 hectare solar farm right here. Both solar companies have multi-contracts with farmers up and down the country. Up to 18 other companies are also investing in solar. The first five solar farms Big player Lodestone and then Genesis, Contact and Meridian all announced their ventures in the last year. Transpower is handling a flourish of inquiries to hook up with the grid. So probably in the period 2014 to 2019, uh, about five to ten inquiries for connection a year. In the last financial year alone we had 120. So there's a bit of a gold rush going on at the moment where everybody um, is trying to get something up and running. Energy analyst Grant Swainpole. I think there's an opportunity to make some money in solar for the next few years, particularly as wholesale prices are already high and you have a situation where actually it's quite quick to build a solar farm under a year. People are locking up land where they can, particularly land that's close to a grid point, flat land, um, and where they can get a 35-year lease from a farmer. Both the proposed solar farms at Greytown are close to a grid point. Farmers all around this Greytown substation have been approached by solar developers and one farmer told me he'd had four solar companies come knocking on his door wanting to do a deal. The developer meets the full cost of connecting to the transmission system. So that's why often they are closer to towns? That's often why they are closer to where we have existing assets. If Helios wants to build this, then build it somewhere appropriate where it's got minimum impact and pay the money, invest, pay for the infrastructure. Don't try and get the local residents to pay for it in their loss of property values. 
This property owner, bordering the far north Great Aunt project, doesn't want to be identified and insists the expression solar farm is to make the consent process easier and more palatable for locals. It's not really a farm, it's an industrial solar installation. Far North Solar's first project in Northland was welcomed by the community and the Prime Minister. Another is located at an old forestry block, but Greytown has been met with some resistance. Far North Solar Farm Director John Telfer. This is probably the, the first time when we've had um, um, some, some light um, opposition to a, to a project, and it's, it's something that we're looking forward to um, working our way through and, and coming up with you know, acceptable solutions to the surrounding landowners. But some great Harners are warning other rural communities that big solar is on its way. A Helensville solar project is also becoming a divisive community issue. I don't think the government, government or local government has provided any real guidance and removing arable land, good arable pasture from our food supply is actually increasing food insecurity. Well I think they're trying to um, race ahead of the RMA changes um, and it's all it's unregulated. You know there's nothing to stop them. It's like the red carpet's been rolled out and they're but just... Who, who's rolled out the red carpet? Well I think the government. Trade and industry has worked to connect foreign investors with local solar developers. In most cases, foreign capital is the only option if we are to meet our zero carbon targets. On the ground, Lloyd is lamenting the community fallout with the well-liked farmers doing the deals. The farmers have been instructed by the solar companies not to talk to the media, but through a statement issued to us by Helios, this family here, who have been on the land for seven generations, told us that they've seen the effects of climate change on their farm and they want to be part of the solution. And with so much demand for their land, farmers are starting to negotiate higher lease prices. But some property owners around the farms are claiming they're being portrayed as environmental heretics. It's the straw man argument, isn't it? It's that if we oppose them, somehow we don't want a clean planet. Somehow we're climate uh, change deniers. Is that the feeling you're getting? Yes, very much so. Or the weird nimbies, which apparently means not in my backyard, you know? My argument to that is no, it's not in my back, not out of my back pocket. I don't think it should be in anybody's backyard. It really shouldn't. Um, it, it's just, they're taking hundreds and hundreds of hectares of beautiful land throughout New Zealand, all in a rush. And, and you know, we won't get that back again. Fina Owen with that report. Coming up on Q&A, this time next week, new councils and mayors will have just been elected right around the country. But why are so many councils still relying on postal ballots for their elections? Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. 
For several seasons, Kiwi fruit growers have been desperate to bring in more seasonal workers from overseas. And this week, the government agreed. 3,000 more places for recognised seasonal employees, RSE workers, will be opened up, alongside new legislation to give migrant workers more protections. Salnua Mali'i Karanina Sumeo is the Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. Tēnā koe, good morning. Tēnā koe, tāla for Jack. Let's start with those 3,000 workers. What do you make of the government's announcement? Uh, no doubt, the government, the unions, businesses, I mean, it was a joint decision, I understand. You know, they're acting in what they think is good for our country. Um, what's also good for our country is that we uphold people's human rights. Those are in our laws. It's also an international labour organisation um, convention on forced labour that we sign and we agree to, which says that we are committed to eradicating all forms of forced labour. And what we're talking about here is bonded labour, is people suffering intimidation, living in atrocious conditions, and they come from the Pacific. You know, when, when they come from the Pacific, we're talking about our whanaunga, our mm. family. And it's so critical that we do this right and we uphold the human rights. So I was a little surprised, Jack, that we had moved so quickly, uh, considering that uh, the Human Rights Commission ourselves raised um, concerns with, um, mm. with the minister and uh, also with police on some of our concerns. So I'm still awaiting the outcome of those investigations. What does it say to you about the government's priorities as they stand? Uh, as I said, their, their priority is uh, the, the best interest of New Zealand. But going forward, our best interest includes making sure that we uphold the human rights of the people who come to New Zealand mm. and whose labour from which we profit. Um, I think there's been a, a bit of a, um, a loss of public confidence mm. as a result of all the stories that have come out. And these are, it's not just this year, like, you know, for recent years, there have mm. been lots of stories. So we've got to earn that public trust again, trust in our businesses, trust in our government, um, and just, you know, trust that we will honour the things that, that we do and, and protect the people from whom we benefit from. You have done a lot of work in this space, so talk mm. to us a bit more about the conditions the migrant workers on the RSE scheme are living and working in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some of the conditions that I, and I was invited in to, to visit a number of RSE workers, so I, I entered into one venue where you got buckets along the wall where you can actually see the water coming down the wallpaper and uh, people are sleeping in their shared rooms, there's no heaters, there's nowhere to put their, they're living out of their suitcases, you know, for months while they're here, mm. freezing cold, um, you know, it's just unhygienic, you know, one place is supposed to have a cleaner that comes every week, they, the cleaner only came, what, in three months, once in three months, so, you know, really unsatisfactory, you know, people who come to New Zealand have basic fundamental human rights, the right to health, the right to shelter, those mm. things. And we're not ensuring those. So we're not honouring these people. What rights do REC workers at the moment have to leave a bad employer and try and find employment elsewhere? Yeah. Well, this is the difficulty. Because when they come, the employers bring them in. So they have to pay off the debt before they can go home. This is why you said they're essentially bonded workers. This is why they're bonded workers. It's not like they can get up and say, I've had enough, I'm going, mm. you know. So they're being held back. So essentially they're bonded, it's forced. They're mm -hmm. not voluntarily working, mm. they have to work. But also those who do come and work here, um, if they don't work, for example, if they're not considered to be working fast enough or hard enough, they are threatened. 
So that's intimidation. Those are threats. We've also received information of physical assaults. And those are some of the things that we've asked the police to look into. And the government has still not decoupled REC workers from their employers. Yes, and that's still uh, the, the biggest barrier um, to making sure that we eliminate modern slavery. Well, why, why wouldn't they do that? Uh, it would be a uh, good idea to ask the government about that, but I mean... One you of must the, have an idea. <laughs> well, one of the reasons, uh, one of the concerns that our Pacific nations have is they don't want to lose their people permanently. Yeah. So, you know, they do want them to come back home. Um, of course, when someone is being exploited, they're scared that they'll mm. lose the job and losing the source of income goes home. So, in a way, it, it silences, you know, it silences mm. from, from, from reaching, uh, from getting help. So, but if they remove that tie, like in Australia, there is some flexibility mm. that you can move, you know, between. And then, obviously, if you want to hold on to your people, you'll treat them well. Mm -hmm. Now, know. as well as the increase of 3,000 REC mm. workers, the government has announced legislation to improve some of the protections for those workers. What do you make of that legislation? Uh, one of the things they're saying is that they're going to um, have pastoral cares who are independent of employers, which I think is a great move, because obviously... Um, if the pastoral care is tied to the employer and the employer is dodgy, well, then the worker doesn't feel like they can trust it. So that's really good. I'm really glad to see that they're going to guarantee sick leave, you know, because, of course, we've heard of people being sick but still being forced to go mm. to work. Um, but that doesn't go far enough, Jack, because giving them sick leave is one thing, but often you're in these rural areas, you know, for normal Kiwis, there's not enough GPs there anyway. So yeah. how do you ensure that the health service is provided? Yeah, what else? How, how might they solve that problem? Yeah, well, I mean, businesses have to get together in terms of, you know, is, is there some negotiation that can be had with Tefano Water, what well, the Fats Water, for example, oh. in terms of how do you ensure that health services get to these rural places mm. and get to these workers. Often they can't speak English, so you know that's on top of trying to access services. So they kind of think of all of that and make it accessible because th these workers are paying health insurance, yeah. but they're not getting the health yeah, care yeah. that they're paying for. So it's a bit of a scam if that's the case. Yeah. The new legislation talks about educating RSE workers on their rights, and you personally are of course a Samoan New Zealander. Yeah. So I wonder if you might be able to tell us about how the REC scheme is discussed and perceived in Samoa and how those perceptions might relate to the reality. Yeah, well it's, it's, it's sold as the hope, like with recession, so many jobs were going. So this is like the hope of, of income. So they're desperate for the income, mm. but they're also assured certain benefits, like you have accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. But then when they get here, the reality is quite, quite difficult. They might spend the first two, three months trying to pay off the deductions for the airfare and the visa, and they're only able to send money home, you know, mm. after that time. And this is not new to New Zealand. It's also something that we hear about the RSE scheme in Australia. So there's something about the whole scheme that needs to be reviewed and reviewed urgently. When the Labor Inspectorate makes inspections at sites that use RSE workers, mm. are they always able to communicate with those workers? I've raised that question with Minister Woods uh, because when I went in with my work to see the workers, one of my advisors spoke their, their language. Hmm. That was the only way that I could understand the picture and, and the extent and also in terms of their personal feelings, which men don't often talk about. But um, when they had someone else who could speak their language, they opened up about that. So I did raise this with the minister. Do your labour inspectors speak the languages of, of, hmm. of the, um, the, the workers that you're going to? Because otherwise, 
you just got to get a surface um, response. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like to see changed in the way we accommodate RSE workers? Uh, I would like to see, in terms of the 3,000, Jack, I would have expected the houses have been built before we allow in the 3,000 mm. because we're already struggling right. to accommodate the existing numbers. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is, yeah. my, this is the point that I was asking earlier in the interview. I, mm. I wonder if you have some observations as to the priorities here because we've announced this increase in 3,000 workers, but clearly you still have concerns around their conditions. Yeah. And I wonder if there is a sense within you and your team that the government is putting the cart before the horse. That is my feeling, because um, we're responding to the calls of businesses, but we have to ensure that we can you know, protect and uphold the rights of these. So number one, we need to make sure that the accommodation is, is ready. Mm. We need to make sure that health access is ready. And also, if things go wrong, they have a right to access to justice and to compensation. I didn't hear anything about that in the package that's been announced. You know, if something goes wrong, how do you provide access to justice to these workers? Mm. And also, even if they leave New Zealand, because this is the problem some of the cases, the complaints are raised and then they leave the country and it's all, all of a sudden, okay, it's, it's gone. No, no, we, we, have, we have an obligation to ensure you know, due compensation for these mm. workers, even when they leave our shores, because we're going to need them back. Mm. So we've got we to earn that trust back. So you started this interview by saying you think the changes have been announced because the government is acting in what it thinks is the best interests of New Zealand. Yes. If you still have these concerns about the way we treat our whanaunga, what does it say about New Zealand's values? The public, uh, the ordinary public, reached out to the Human Rights Commission as a result of our uh, initial inquiries. I think they're not convinced that we're ready. Mm. And I'm not convinced that we're ready. All right. Yeah. Tēnā thank you very much for your time. Sānui mali'i karanina sumeo. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Did you know the Electoral Commission basically has nothing to do with running our local body elections? For some, it might seem obvious, but many voters are unaware that unlike the general election, private companies are responsible for managing and facilitating many of the local body elections that are currently underway. And once again, at least compared to the general election, 2022 is on track for a lacklustre turnout. Warwick Lamp works for elections.com, meaning right now he's the electoral officer for 45 different local body elections. I want to start with a really basic question. How does the current system work? Well, different to the parliamentary elections, of course, run by the Electoral Commission. Uh, electoral Commission are not involved in local government elections other than providing us with the electoral role. And so Taking that out of play, each council uh, looks after their own election separately and has their own electoral officer and then, um, in most cases, employ two electoral providers to look after all those elections. And so as electoral officers, we are then responsible for the conduct of each of those elections separately, completely separately from what the Electoral Commission do. So that means um, calling for nominations, receiving all the candidates, verifying them all, developing all the voting documents and then sending them out, getting the votes back, counting them and producing the results and managing all the candidates and the process um, as that happens. Why doesn't the Electoral Commission run things? Yeah, good question. The Electoral Commission um, have only ever done the parliamentary elections. Um, it, you know, it, is, it is an option for it to be run centrally and you know, it's, probably a, it's a very good question. But each council is different. 
Um, every council has their own model of representation. Um, each council does things differently. They have their own issues, their own things going on in their community. Um, and so th in that respect, um, that means that the elections are, are much more complex than the parliamentary elections. You know, for example, you know, the parliamentary elections is 60 electorates, you know, 450 candidates. Council elections, we're talking about 4,000 candidates, 1,500 different voting combinations. Um, much more profoundly complex. Um, and the Electoral Commission have never shown an interest to, to take that on. So there were parliamentary inquiries into the 2016 and 2019 local body elections and in both instances the overwhelming message from submitters was that the Electoral Commission should take over and should be running local body elections. What's your position? Should the Electoral Commission be involved? Uh, I'm relaxed about that. Um, because of the local voice, local choice and each council you know, having their own way of doing things, um, yeah, that makes it a little bit more complex. Uh, but you know, at the moment there's... You know, different voting systems, FPP, STV, uh, every council has their a different hoardings policy. Um, they all do things different ways. Some are at large, some have wards, many have community boards. So all of those things are different. Um, and so a one-size-fits-all approach um, that's a little bit like the parliamentary elections uh, doesn't really apply to the council elections. Would some degree of standardisation make sense? Oh, absolutely. And if I was designing it from the ground up, you know, those would be some of the things that I would look at. You know, in my view, I would go STV for everyone. Um, random order of candidates. Because it doesn't matter whether it's alphabetical or what it is. Um, random order. Um, same hoardings policy for everyone. Uh, same rules around um, photos for profile statements, because at the moment they're different. Um, you know, all of those things make it a bit more complex and it would be much easier if that was the case. Postal voting, uh, and there's vagaries of the postal system, uh, but you know, one option is online voting, of course. Why do you think voter turnout is so low? Well, on the grand scheme of things, actually, I'm not, I'm not a believer that turnout is actually that low. Um, you know, across the country, it's 45% nationally. It's pretty average. Well, parliamentary elections, well, 75, 80%. But compared to all the other elections that we do for private organisations, 45% uh, is pretty high. Um, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, councils uh, perhaps don't have as much of um, an impact on people's lives um, as the parliamentary elections. And the parliamentary elections is, is quite a tradition. You know, we all have this tradition of polling booth day, voting day. Uh, we go along and vote. That's never been the case for council elections. Do you think the current system serves the best interests of democracy? I think that uh, the country's changed, um, the way we do things has changed, and that um, the way that the election process is set up is very complex, um, and it isn't as easy for people to vote as it used to be. And the postal system is, is, you know, has, its, has its issues. And we could argue now that the three-week voting period is, is too short for the postal system that we have in place. So I think when you put those things in place, yes, it is time to, to look at how it all fits together. What might a future that involved more online voting options look like? Well, councils are the only elections we do that don't have an online component. Uh, you know, we've been doing online, online voting for a long time, and we know all the, all the intricacies and the ins and outs of that. And it really does make it a lot easier for people to vote. 
particularly when combined with a postal election where we send out the voting papers to people and they have the option to complete them, put them back in the post, or go to an online voting site, enter their PIN and pass, um, and vote online. Easier to get information about the candidates, um, easier to vote, can be done anytime, of course, be done anywhere. Um, and in that respect, um, we think that would make quite a difference, particularly for people that are you know, overseas at the moment. If you're overseas now for the council elections, the chances of you voting is you know, pretty low because you're not going to get your voting papers and get them back to us in time in the post. So when you chuck that in the mix and you, you combine it with um, postal voting, you know, and we think that will, will make a difference and will, and will likely increase the participation. To be clear, having an online component would probably benefit companies like elections.com, right? Well, you know, we are in the business of providing elections, um, but that's not the point. The point is about making it as easy as possible for people to vote. And even if the Electoral Commission were running um, council elections, there's no reason why they, they couldn't do online voting uh, at the same time. What are the concerns that people most often present to you regarding online voting? Security? There's the perception of the security. You know, we always hear the stories around, well, the, the Russians are going to hack that or the Chinese are interested in, in hacking it. But, um, you know, the answer I give to that is, um, you know, we do online banking all the time. Uh, do we have the same concerns around that? No, we don't. The, the thing about online voting is that it's a one-time PIN. So you use it once, use your password once, gone. So uh, it's not as if there's passwords, PINs out there that people can then reuse and hack into the system. Uh, but we do a lot of work in the cyber security behind it and all the, all the intrusion technology that we have um, to ensure that those things don't happen. What will it take to create change in the way we vote? Well, at this point in time, there's actually not a lot that can change because the legislation is so prescriptive that you know, the voting period is set, the voting methods are set. Um, there's not really anything that we can do about that. We are keen for the legislation to be uh, looked at again um, because there are plenty of improvements that can come out of that to make things easier for people to vote. For example, e even like the parliamentary elections, uh, people can vote from overseas by uh, downloading a PDF, completing their vote, scanning it and sending it back. Council elections, the legislation doesn't even allow that. So we can't do anything electronic, can't do anything online. Oh, I think it's time to look at the process, um, the, the issues of the postal voting system uh, or the postal network um, are getting to the point where it is really hard to get voting papers out and voting papers back in time um, and so it is time to look at what are better options and easier options for people to vote. You know, th this time we are, you know, we are mitigating that by having ballot boxes and ballot bins in the community which um, is an initiative that councils have taken up this time that we haven't really done in the past. You know, transport hubs, supermarkets uh, where there's plenty of ballot boxes this time around and we're seeing that in, the, in, in, in this period lots of people using those and they're going really well um, and so we'll have a big deluge of votes next week for people who, who use those opportunities to get their votes back um, that will help but going forward you know if we couple that with online voting then i think there's there's lots of opportunity there that's warwick lamp who is running dozens of council elections around the country if you haven't voted yet 
There is less than a week to go, so get your ballot in. We will have all the big local body election results for you live next Sunday morning. Until then, from the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And uh, mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you very much for your feedback. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.